looked at the uh, death, the burial, and the, the reported resurrection of Christ, and we noted, first of all in the study, the reasons for the killing of Jesus. In other words, we answered the question that if Jesus was so absolutely morally perfect and such a lover of men and so concerned about humanity, how could he so infuriate a group of religious people that they wanted to take his life? And so we looked at his teaching and we noted that, that he actually uh, condemned the teaching of the top religious leaders of his day. And he put all emphasis on a change in life and where a person's heart was into doing what's right, not just doing some outward functions, uh, that in taking issue with the religious leaders of that day and actually drawing away a number of their disciples to himself, he incurred their envy, uh, he incurred their hatred, uh, they were disturbed at him for various, various reasons, and then when he made the claim to literally be the Son of God, they nailed him for blasphemy. And so based on that, they was crucified. All right, we noted that the fact that Jesus talked in the way that we have recorded, nobody questions. In other words, uh, scholars are in agreement that we have at least basically uh, the teaching of Christ and what he actually taught here on this earth. Uh, scholars are also in the agreement that Jesus was killed. Uh, we, we noted that we can go and look at the historians outside the New Testament, look at the New Testament itself, look at history, and we can nail down that they actually did kill him. We also noted that we could nail down that three days, the third day after that, that that tomb was empty, okay? And then within 50 days uh, of that event, uh, bringing us to the day of Pentecost, these same apostles who had fled in unbelief and were cowardly and did not stand up for him at the, at the end, they, they were not looking for a crucified Christ. A crucified Christ was simply not the Christ to them. They thought he would live forever on this earth and they, he would lead them in a rebellion to overthrow Rome. And he simply didn't do it. But then we read that, uh, that all of these apostles I, were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, every one of them. Also, certain ladies were witnesses of his resurrection. And we noted that although we have the account, uh, their account in the New Testament, that somebody might respond and say, well, all you have is a biased account written by his believers. But in reality, it's not that way, that all of his believers, all the believers in the resurrection, were at first very skeptical. There's not a single solitary person that becomes a believer in the New Testament, but that he was very skeptical at first. And so when we read the report of the eyewitnesses, remember that although they are believers when we get their report, they were extremely skeptical, and even a, a devout follower like Peter was in absolute unbelief that he would come forth from the grave like, like he said he would. And so we have to remember that, that the record by his believers, that they were all unbelievers before they saw him or made the claim that they saw him. We also noted in looking at that that history will acknowledge, uh, all, all historians, unbelieving historians as well as believing, that the apostles were very sincere, that they honestly believed that he had raised from the dead. And they were not making up any lie. The reason that historians will agree to this 
is because of the suffering and the persecution they went through in the propagation of this new religion. That people don't suffer and die for something that they know is a lie. They have to have to at least believe it's true, whether it's not or not. So the only thing that the unbelieving historian who is not a Christian can say is, yes, they killed him. Yes, the, they buried him. Yes, the grave was empty three days later. Yes, the apostles believed that they saw him, but we think they were deceived. But we pointed out that you really can't have this because when we look at the record of what they said, they were in such unbelief that even when he first appeared to them, they, they said, well, they first thought maybe it was a ghost, and, and they refused to acknowledge that it was him. And it wasn't until they touched him and talked with him and ate with him and experienced him in every way that you could experience another human being, only then did they acknowledge that he literally had been raised from the dead. In other words, what they state is so concrete that they're either lying or they're telling the truth. They're not deceived. They're either lying or they're telling the truth. And yet, again, if they're lying, then psychologically we've got a problem that we just can't explain because it's never happened before. And that is that if they're lying, then we have people willfully agreeing to a lie that they know is going to cost them their life and they go out and they suffer all kinds of persecution and they go to jail and one by one they go to their death and all they had to do to stop their suffering, jailing and persecution and death was to acknowledge that, that they were involved in a lie. That's all they had to do. We noted also that, that so far as those that was trying to discredit Jesus, that he was preached in the very city where he was crucified and that all anybody had to do was produce the body. The body was never produced. Rome tried to expose Christianity. The Jews tried to expose it. Nobody ever came up with that body. Okay? And the disciples are changed people that are turning the world upside down. Now, whether or not a person believes in the resurrection, his death, the burial, the empty tombs, and the change in lives of the apostles and the concrete statements they made and the fact that they were converting thousands of people, those are historical facts. And then the question becomes, based on the historical facts that we have and all the evidence, what becomes the accurate interpretation of that empty tomb? Okay, now, our step tonight is a look at Paul. And as we look at Paul and put it together with what we had last week, let's keep in mind something about evidence. We're seeking to prove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. One piece of evidence doesn't prove anything. How much evidence you need to prove something to you depends on how important the event really is. For example, that uh, if, if I told you that that car out there, the, the uh, almost red one, belonged to me, you would just accept that. Just based on the fact that I said, that's my car, and I had the keys to it, and I could, and I could drive it, you would accept it as, as my car. That really wouldn't prove it's my car. But it really didn't matter that much to you. And if your experience with me is that I'm generally honest, you would accept that. But if I were going to sell you that car, then that evidence wouldn't be sufficient. Just me claiming it's my car and having the keys. That wouldn't be sufficient. Even though you know me and I'm basically an honest person, you're going to buy that car. It's going to cost you several thousand dollars. And so that's not sufficient. Now you want a title. Now, 
The fact that I can produce a title still doesn't prove that I own that car. But if your experience with me is positive, and I do have the keys and I have a title, that probably would be enough evidence to convince you. But if you didn't know me, then even the title probably wouldn't be. You'd want a little more evidence to convince you that I actually own that car. Now, suffice it to say, eventually, it could be proven to you beyond any doubt that that was my car. But there would be no one piece of evidence that would do it. There would be several pieces of evidence. And how much is required would be depended by you on how much it's going to cost you. Okay, in the same vein, of all the events that we study in history, we say we believe all kinds of things that doesn't even have a fraction of the evidence behind it that the resurrection of Christ. We say we believe that Socrates said something, or Plato did something, or, or Aristotle said something, or Alexander the Great, or Confucius. And the evidence with which we believe that doesn't even compare to this as, as historical evidence. But these things are of such a nature that they're really not all that important to us anyway. I mean, if it turns out that Aristotle did not say that, so what? Now, when we get into this, we're getting into something that does mean something. That if this is indeed a resurrection, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then it's the greatest event that's ever happened in history. If it's not what it claims to be, then it's the biggest lie that ever happened in history. Either way, it's worth our examination because we all know we're going to die. And if there's any possibility of life beyond this life, then we ought to be willing to at least examine the evidence. And we all know that Jesus is one person who lived. There was an empty tomb after they buried him. And that 2,000 years later, the whole world is measuring time before and after his birth. The millions of people all over the world believe in him. It's the, absolutely the only worldwide religion. We know that. So I'm saying it's, we have enough information to cause us to at least become interested and examine the facts. And so that's what we're doing. Now we're going to look at Paul. Paul is one more piece of evidence. A look at Paul alone will not prove the resurrection. But we offer Paul as one more piece of evidence along with the information that we offered last week. Okay, first, let's look at Acts 7, and beginning with verse 57, and look at the, an indivi the individual that we're talking about. Uh, let's see, Chuck, let's start over with you and read that uh, verse 57 through 60, please. Okay. At this they cover their ears. It's in chapter 7, right? Mm-hmm. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Okay, notice who Saul is. Uh, Stephen has just preached a sermon trying to prove to his fellow Jews that Jesus was the Christ. The end result is that he was stoned to death. Saul, we're going to learn a little bit about Saul, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, uh, one of the most devout religious sects of that day, the religious sect that was the most respected by the common people of that day. 
Saul is absolutely convinced that Jesus is an imposter. He does not believe in the resurrection of Christ. He listened to the sermon by Stephen. He wasn't turned on at all. And he held the garments while they stoned him to death. Now, Saul is doing this because of his belief in the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, if somebody claimed to be a prophet of God and they were not, the penalty was that they be stoned to death. That's in Deuteronomy 13. But here is Saul now. Now, as we move into Acts 9, let's say a few things about Saul. Number one, when we say that Saul of Tarsus, whom we will, who will also take the name Paul, was a historical character who was a devout Jew, a member of the Pharisees, who had Roman citizenship, and who spent his early years trying to stamp out Christianity, those are facts that everybody will acknowledge. Madeleine O'Hara will acknowledge it. Any atheist scholar will acknowledge it. Any Muslim scholar will acknowledge it. There is absolutely no historical scholar that I'm aware of that will not acknowledge this about Paul, that he is a person that is devoutly trying to stamp out Christianity. He's also a very <laughs> devout Jew. Okay. Now, another thing as we read Acts 9, to keep in mind, of all the writers in the Bible, and of all the writers you could read from in history, there is none that you could read from that has more respect from the historians than Luke, who is recording Acts. Uh, Sir William Ramsey was an archaeologist. Uh, he's uh, referred to as the father of New Testament archaeology. When he began his study in searching out the, the historical events and the various things in Acts and Luke and the other books of the New Testament and in other writers from this, this period of time and, and at this, in this area where all this is happening, he actually started his work as a skeptic who did not believe the New Testament was inspired. He, he did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. He believed the New Testament had evolved over a period of years and had become embellished and various things were written into it. He believed that as a result of his school of the Tubigen School of Theology in Germany. Germany. As a result of his archaeological studies, the man came to recognize, and in his own writing, he referred to Luke as the most accurate historian that he had ever walked behind as an archaeologist. He became impressed with Luke as a historian, said he had never found him in a lie. He had never followed a historian that was that accurate. All right, his estimation of Luke, by the way, William Ramsey became a Christian. William Ramsey's estimation of Luke is echoed today by historians. Even historians who are not Christian look at Luke is absolutely the top historian of the New Testament. They look at him, he's a Gentile, he's not a Jew. He's well-educated, and he does his work as a historian who makes every effort to be accurate. Okay, let's go ahead and read this, starting with uh, uh, chapter 9. And let's read on around. If you don't want to read, then just pause, and the next person go ahead, and we'll finish, finish out till I tell you to pause. <clears throat> Okay, somebody want to start? Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. 
I am Jesus, and you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blinded, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him, called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on, place his hands on him to resort to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hand on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, somebody? Okay, Jason? Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and laid him down for an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. The glory lifted him and brought him to the cross, and they told him how Saul on Sinai had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fiercely in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about praying in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and begged with the Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, leading in the fear of the Lord. Okay, now, notice what we read here. You've read that uh, 
First of all, that Saul was a devout Jew. In fact, hold your place here and flip over to 22 of Acts, chapter 22 of Acts, that we've seen that uh, Saul was a devout Jew. We have seen that he was doing everything he could to stamp out Christianity. In fact, here in chapter 2, when he makes his own defense, notice some statements that Saul made about himself. In verse 1 of chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came from Damascus, suddenly a bright light flashed from heaven around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. He said, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been assigned to do. All right, now notice what we've read so far, looking at it from the standpoint of just a historian now. Uh, we're not talking about inspiration or anything. We're talking about just pure historical fact that all scholars will acknowledge. Paul lived, okay? Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. He had heard sermons about Christ. He knew about the life of Christ, and he rejected Christ as being the Messiah. He did not believe the resurrection. He believed that he was serving God when he was having Christians thrown into jail and even having the, the preachers of Christianity put to death. Okay, now, Luke records that Saul on his way, while he was traveling with letters to persecute Christians more, that Jesus appeared to him and that he talked to Saul. And as a result of the conversation and seeing Jesus, that Paul went on into the city and there a man by the name of Adonias came to him. Saul was given his eyesight. He had been blinded when he saw the light. He had given his eyesight and then it says that he began at that point to debate and argue that Jesus was the Christ. All right, now, the fact that Paul was in the process of trying to stamp out Christianity, notice what he said in, in 22, when he said in verse 4, chapter 22, I persecuted the followers of this way, arresting men and women, throwing them into prison. And notice what he says in verse 5, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. In other words, he's saying that what I did all the top Jews can testify to you that that's the truth, okay? The book of Acts was written about 60 A.D., okay? It's published. Any Jew that wanted to could have took issue with it. They did not. There is not a Jewish scholar today but that he will acknowledge that Paul was a Pharisee, that Paul persecuted Christianity, and that Paul actually had people put to death. And then the next point, the fact that Paul believed that he saw Christ and came to the conclusion that Jesus was, was the Christ, the Messiah, and that he'd been raised from the dead, 
Everybody will acknowledge that. The question is, did Paul really see it? Is Paul deceived? Again, as with the other disciples, there is no scholar, and I'm talking about unbelieving scholars who are not Christian. There is no scholar that will stand up and say that Paul is a liar or that he was trying to deceive people. The reason they don't is because Paul sacrificed so much and he changed his belief so entirely that they said there's just no way to account for that except that Paul actually believed that he saw Jesus. So again, the question becomes, was Paul deceived or did he actually see Jesus? Well, now I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians 11 for one reason. I'm going to show just how strong that Paul believed. Remember we said that we all believe based on evidence. And the strength of the evidence that's necessary is dependent upon what is required of us. That if you're going to buy my car, you want more evidence than if, than if I'm just telling you it's my car and you're going to go for a ride with me. In the same vein, what Paul is willing to sacrifice and give up will show just how strong that he actually believed. Now, we know he believed. The question is just how strong he believed. And then the question becomes, how do you produce this kind of faith in a man who is extremely well-educated, who believes that Jesus is a farce, he believes that Christianity is wrong, and how do you, in just one day's time, change him to a complete believer who's willing to suffer in the way that we have recorded here? Now, as we read this in 2 Corinthians 11, and we're going to drop in uh, right about uh, verse 23, the middle of the verse, Right about verse 23. Uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter that all scholars will acknowledge is written by Paul. Okay? It's written in the 50s A.D. And so just as historians will accept Acts as a historical document written by Luke, 2 Corinthians is acknowledged by historians as a letter written by the Apostle Paul published in the early 50s A.D. Okay, now, 2 Corinthians 11 beginning with verse 23, okay? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Now, in this context, we're not really interested in what Paul's real argument is here, okay? And, and the reason for saying this, that's not our, our problem now. All we're concerned with is what Paul was suffering as a result of his conversion to Christianity. <clears throat> so right about the middle of the verse, uh, where it says, I have worked much harder in comparing himself to the other apostles. Okay, Steve, would you start there in verse 23 where it says, I have worked much harder, and continue on down to verse, through verse 28. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open, in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the, all the churches. Okay, and in verse 32, look at verse 32. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of, Dama of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. 
but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and, and slipped through his hands. All right, now notice here, backing up to verse 23. He speaks of how hard he works in the promotion of Christianity. Nobody will question that in the first century that Paul outworked everybody in spreading Christianity. In fact, a lot of scholars who are not Christians believe that Christianity would have not have progressed, would not have conquered the Roman world without the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was the number one advocate to it. Today, when you and I read the New Testament, 13 of these letters, maybe 14, but at least 13 are written by the Apostle Paul. He was a number one apostle that went to the Gentiles. He outdid all the apostles. So the point is, the very thing that he was trying to destroy, Christianity, he becomes converted to it, and he now is working harder to promote it than anybody else. Now notice what he goes through. He's flogged. Uh, he's exposed to death. Five different times from the Jews, he was whipped. Uh, he's been beaten with rods three times. He's been stoned. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. He's been out, he's been out in the open, open sea. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen. The Jews wanted to kill him. And almost from the very first, there was a bounty on the head of Paul. In danger of the Gentiles, there were times when the Gentiles uh, wanted to kill him. Remember when he would go in and, and people would turn from their idols to, to believe in Jesus and the idolatrous leaders would become disturbed and they'd want to take his life. In danger in the city and in the country, in sea, false brothers, even within the church. Here's the interesting thing about Paul. Not only the Jews didn't like him and wanted to take his life, many of the Gentiles wanted to take his life, but even in the church... Uh, the majority of the church at the time Paul was converted, Paul's conversion probably was about three or four years after the resurrection of Christ. And during those early years, the church that he was a part of, looked at, he looked at Paul as a way out liberal. Uh, keep in mind that 16 years after the resurrection, they're still debating circumcision and the law of Moses, and man, Paul's from the very first nailed that to the cross. And so the, the Jews are very suspect, even within the church, he doesn't have a lot of friends. They're very, very suspicious of him. Okay, he's hungry at times. He goes without food. He's put in jail. And, of course, Paul doesn't have it here because it hasn't happened yet. Eventually, Paul will go to his death at the hands of Nero. All right, suffice it to say, Paul believed without any doubt in his mind. And notice what we've got now. And all I'm looking at is what historians will agree to. Okay, all historians, believers and unbelievers, that's all we're looking at. Everybody will acknowledge that Paul lived, that he was extremely well educated. Okay, in fact, the very letters he writes that we have are a testimony to his education. He was very intelligent. The letters testify to his intelligence. He was a devout Jew. He believed that Jesus was an imposter, and he thought it was his duty to destroy Christianity. In one day's time, this man became a Christian. He said he saw Christ, okay, and he witnessed him, and he, that he, and he conversed with him, and that he knew that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, you and I don't know. We just got Paul's statement on that. We were not there. But we know what Paul was before that day, and we know that immediately after that day, here again, all the historians will acknowledge, something has happened to Paul. 
all of a sudden, the very thing that he's trying to destroy, Christianity, he now is promoting it like nobody else. He's outdoing all the other apostles. You can't shut him up. You can whip him. You can threaten him with death. You can throw him in jail. You can spit on him. You can call him scum. You can mock him. You can do anything you want, but you can't shut him up. He's out to tell the whole world that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He, he's not doing it for popularity. The Jews reject him. Most of the Gentiles reject him. He, there is no reason for doing this except that he's convinced beyond any doubt in his mind. Now the question becomes, how could he be so totally convinced except that event really did happen, that he saw the resur resurrected Christ? Now, because Paul is so sincere and he sacrifices so much and he accomplishes so much, none of the historians will say that Paul is lying. There's not a one. I've never read from a single historian. I've never had a single one brought up to me in any source that I've ever studied from. They all will acknowledge that Paul is sincere and he's telling the truth. Now, the non-Christian will say they believe that Paul is deceived. Okay, here's their argument. They said that Paul had been having Christians put to death and he was getting on his conscience. It was really bothering him. And he was not a physically healthy person. And so that he actually uh, was hallucinating and out of his head and, and believed that he saw the resurrected Christ and that changed his life. That's their explanation. What about the blindness? Was there any secular uh, mention of his blindness? Well, again, what you have there is, is the fact that Ananias came and, and he got his eyesight and you got Paul's statement. In other words, everybody will acknowledge that Paul at least, that Paul's not lying. If he said he couldn't see, he was. But they would attribute that to his, on that hot road, a sickly man, uh, hungry, not enough water, and hallucinating. You know, and that, and that was the, the end result of, of that kind of thing. So that's their explanation. So as with the apostles, scholarship that is non-Christian will say that the man is sincere, okay? and that he was this kind of person, and he became a devout Christian, and he's sincere. But here's what we're going to notice. We're going to Galatians now, to another of Paul's letters. And we're going to show that what Paul says about his experience with Jesus is so concrete that he's either lying or telling the truth. There's, there's no being deceived about it. The man is either a liar or he's, or he's telling, telling the truth. Uh, turn over to Galatians, the first chapter, right after 2 Corinthians. Uh, Steve, would you help uh, Lee in that? Galatians 1 and beginning with verse 11. Okay, now, okay, Joe, we start with you. Now, listen, what we're reading here now, again, our big concern for tonight is not this context in Galatians. What, what has really happened is Paul's apostleship has been challenged. But we want to note some statements that Paul made about his relationship to Christ and about his early preaching. Okay? Beginning from verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who had set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, 
was pleased to, to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Then after an interval, interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we had in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield into subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Okay, Tim. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to the, those men added nothing to the to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and make to the Jews, and all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor for very thing I was eager to do. Okay, now let's notice first the letter. Galatians is one of the earliest New Testament letters. Okay, most scholars will place it somewhere around 49, around 49 A.D., uh, that puts it about somewhere around 16 years after the birth of the church or somewhere around 13 or so years late, late, later on. All right, now, Galatians written, I'm saying that's the earliest, right about 49, some will put it a few years after that. Paul wrote it. Of all the letters in the New Testament, there is none more verified than Galatians. In other words, that I don't know a, a single New Testament scholar that denies that Paul wrote Galatians and that we have it transmitted to us in just as, as he wrote it. All right, notice the, the meeting there that took place between Paul and the other apostles later, later on in that chapter. All scholars are in agreement that that meeting did take place. Okay, now notice what Paul says here. He says, first of all, that when he saw Christ and became a believer in his resurrection, that he actually preached for three years before he met any of the other apostles. And he spent 15 days with Peter, okay? Peter was so impressed after meeting Paul and that he was willing to accept Paul. All right, Paul went and preached then a total of 14 more years, okay? Then he meets with Peter and all the other apostles. 
All right, notice now these apostles that were all with Jesus for three and a half years are convinced that Paul did see. They're fully convinced. And notice in the meeting here that we find that Paul, although he had not got any information from the apostles, has been preaching the same thing. In other words, he said, I did not receive the information from the apostles. In fact, all the other apostles did is verify that Paul was preaching the same thing that they were. That's all they did. He said, I didn't receive anything from them. He said, not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. Well, see, Paul was teaching that the law of Moses was not binding, that you did not have to be circumcised to be saved. And this argument had gone on with Jews that had become Christians. And so when he meets, he finds out, well, Peter and the other apostles, although sometimes they're not as strong on this new truth as I am, they recognize the same thing. Now, later on, it will come out that although Peter knew this about the Gentiles being equal and the law of Moses not binding, Peter sometimes was not as strong in standing up for that as Paul was. In fact, Paul rebuked him before the whole congregation at Antioch. But the point is, Peter had the revelation. And he realized that Paul was preaching exactly what had been revealed to him. Notice Paul's own attitude. He said, I went up in fear that what I was preaching was in vain. In other words, that it was so different than what Paul had been taught all his life that he wanted some more confirmation. He wanted to check with the other apostles and make sure they were teaching exactly the same thing. And then it was just like he was totally relieved and amazed at the same time that when he occurred, conferred with the apostles, he found that we're all preaching the same thing. All right, now notice these, are, these guys have been with Jesus for three and a half years, the apostles. And although Paul has not got any information from them, they are fascinated at what Paul knows. And he was able to convince them, who knew exactly what Jesus taught, that he had got that information from Jesus and was preaching the same thing. Now, first of all, what Paul says here is of such a nature that he's either lying or he's telling the truth. He doesn't speak of some nebulous experience. He said that Jesus actually gave him information. They gave him information that only the apostles would have known and that he was teaching that information before he even came in contact with the other apostles. And the apostles fully accepted him and gave him the right hand of fellowship. Okay, so here's Paul. Historians say, yes, Paul was trying to stamp out Christianity because he believed it was false. Yes, he's well-educated. Yes, he's intelligent. Yes, in one day's time, Paul is converted to Christianity and he at least believes that he has seen the resurrected Christ. Yes, Paul did preach. He did convert all those people. He did suffer in those many ways. He did have the meeting with the other apostles. Yes, the other apostles were convinced that Paul did see Jesus and that Paul was preaching the exact same thing that they were preaching. Okay, the question becomes, those are all facts. The question is the interpretation of the facts. Is Paul deceived or is he lying or is he telling the truth? I don't, can anybody think of any alternative there based on, on Paul's own statements? He's either willfully lying, he's deceived, or he's telling the truth. If he's deceived, none of the other apostles sure believed it. They were all convinced that he was telling the truth. And remember, they, the church itself was reluctant to accept Paul. If he's deceived, we have Paul making some very concrete statements. I mean, very concrete statements. On the other hand, if Paul is lying, why does a person who is very high up in the Jewish religion, and he has a lot of prestige, he has a good income, he's well respected, 
and he's trying to stamp out Christianity, why does he in one day's time say, hey, I think I'm going to switch sides, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to teach everybody that Jesus is the Son of God, he was raised from the dead, and I'm going to give my life to this. And I'm willing to go to jail, I'm willing to suffer, I'm willing to die, I'm willing to, suffer, to take all that comes, and I'm willing to say no to everything that, was in, that I had before I became a Christian. And the law of Moses that I love so tremendously, I'm going to go around telling people that it's been nailed to the cross and, and done away with, and we are now under a system of, of, of grace through faith in the, in the blood of Christ. I'm saying, how, how does that even, that doesn't even sound logical to my mind. That, that somebody would concoct something like that. So, historically, the facts are of such a nature that at least from my mind, there's only one interpretation I can come to. Uh, from when I look at Paul from a psychological standpoint, when I look at the message from a philosophical standpoint, when I look at the historical facts, the only conclusion that I can come to is that Paul is, is actually telling the truth. And for anybody that thinks there's anything wrong with Paul's mind, all they have to do is read his letters. There, there's, there's no more sane, intelligent, logical, educated letters that you'll read anywhere than that of the Apostle Paul. All right, anybody want to make any observation or ask any question over what we've uh, uh, covered so far on looking at Paul? Anything at all? Well, with him not getting together with the other disciples for such a long time, there's such a space in between uh, and still preaching the same word, they couldn't. Well, he got it from others, but the point, here's another interesting thing. Paul seems to be the only person that understands this message. That's the problem. Who's he going to get it from? He's, uh, what our, our experience is, from a historical standpoint, that when Jews are first converted to Christianity, they understand and are convinced of the resurrection and that Jesus is the Messiah and he's a sacrifice for their sins. They do not understand about the law of Moses and the new covenant. They still believe you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. They believe the law is binded in every sense. In fact, they still have this special feeling for the temple and the various synagogues and the various rituals and things like this. Okay, we don't find anybody. We know the Gentiles didn't understand what was going on. They were convinced. In other words, Paul is the fellow that really interprets Christianity to us. And the interesting thing, though, is... It's not Peter, it's not James, it's Paul that interprets the real meaning of Christianity to us. But the other apostles are familiar with Paul's letters. And Peter referred to his letters. And the other apostles acknowledged Paul's interpretation of Christianity. And so when we look at it, the interpretation itself is interesting because there is nothing in Paul's background that would have led him to this interpretation. As a Pharisee, he believed in meritorious works before God. Uh, the part, one of the characteristics of the Pharisees' doctrines was their, their belief in meritorious atonement through works. They believed that you could have some bad things, but if you had enough good things in your life, you could overcome those bad things. They, they boasted about the things that they did. And here, Paul, that's what he's been brought up. That's what he believes. And now he's saying, hey, you're not saved by works in any sense of the word. You're saved by grace through faith. That, and that any work you do, unless it's done out of love and the freedom of your own heart, has absolutely no meaning whatsoever before God. In all the writings to come out of the New Testament time, we cannot find that coming from the pen of anybody except Paul. 
There was no other Pharisee that had a concept like that. There's no other writing. It's absolutely unique to Paul, but yet it blends right in with the direction that Jesus started. It fits in with the other letters, and it fits in with the prophecies of the, of the Old Testament. And the question is, how did Paul do this? And he did it all in one day's time. He was converted, and he, he, he does a little traveling, spends some time with the Lord, and all of a sudden he becomes the, the absolute number one person. Okay, now remember, when you're studying or talking with, from, with anybody, don't think of this as just, well, hey, that's in the New Testament, this is by believers, this is what you would expect it to say. That's, that's not the way we're looking at it. We come along and put all these letters together and call it the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 letters, period. Okay? And I don't know that there was anybody in the first generation that had all those letters. And the Gospels were written as four individual documents. And James and Peter and the others wrote individual documents. So look at these as individual historical documents that we can verify that they were written at that time. We can verify they've been accurately transmitted. We can verify the historicity of these events. And, and we can, in other words, that we can verify that Paul was this type of person and he became this type of person. And we've got his letters. We can verify the apostles were this type of person and they became that. And all of them point back to that empty tomb and seeing the resurrected Christ as to the change in their, in their own life. And they literally, as a result of this belief, turn the world upside down. Another thing we could go on with Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he makes a statement there that he performed many miracles that was the signs of being an apostle. Now, I didn't see those miracles when I read that in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. But I do know this. The church that he was writing to, he was rebuking them and trying to get them to repent. And they received this letter. Nobody ever writes back or says anything that, hey, Paul, what are you talking about? We're not aware of any miracles. They just, they just accepted that. When he writes to the Galatians, in chapter 3, he reminds them that his words to them were confirmed with miracles. I didn't see the miracles. But I know that these people that were there acknowledged that and accepted it. They at least believed that, there were, that there, were, there were miracles taking place. Any other uh, comment? Okay. Last week, then we looked at the 12. This week, we look at the Apostle Paul. And then the next time on the resurrection, we're going to look at the those specific prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke of a person that was going to come and suffer and die and yet conquer death, okay? And, the, and what it had to say about the, the ones that the New Testament uses relative to the resurrection itself. Okay.